This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Fly Racing as well as Renthal Street. Don't forget to check out those two websites. Rental, uh, Rental Street have loads of accessories for your street bike, not just for dirt bikes where they're undisputed kings of handlebars and accessories. And Fly Racing as well. Everybody knows them from Supercross and Motocross, but they also have a pretty comprehensive street bike catalogue in terms of protection gear and whatever else. Uh, we're For our video watchers on YouTube, we're modelling some of the lifestyle. There we go. Dave, good job. Neil, uh, poor effort. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Adam Wheeler. I'm joined by Mr. David Emmett and Mr. Neil Morrison. We're missing Steve English, but we'll give him a pass on this show as he was covering the Suzuka 8 hour. So his body clock is probably all over the place. So Steve, um, see you on the next show. Hope you're enjoying listening to this one. Uh, we're going to talk about the Monster Energy British Grand Prix at Silverstone, some of the talking points, some of the stuff we saw, some of the opinions that we have. Uh, first of all, where is everybody? I'm currently trying not to sweat too much back in Barcelona where it's um, only slightly warmer than the UK. Dave, uh, <laughs> you're you're still based uh, down the road from Silverstone. Uh, yeah, I am uh, a little bit north of Stevenage, which is about an hour away from um, uh from Silverstone, I am in the uh, box room in my mum's house. And how is the Emmett digestive system? Because we missed you for the first couple of days of the Grand Prix. Uh, Neil and I mentioned this on the Paddock Pass podcast note show, uh, where the moral of the story is, if you see a dodgy nut, don't swallow it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, stay away from dodgy nuts. That's definitely the um, uh, th- that's definitely the moral of the story. Uh, uh, yes, my mum has got uh, lots of sort of expired foods in her cab uh, in her cupboards, and so well, she doesn't anymore because we clean them all out. Uh, but I made some <laughs> uh, uh, I made some food on Monday night, and that proved to be a big mistake. I was extremely ill. Um, so was my poor wife. Um, and I was sort of doing it generally just sort of had all of the life sucked out of me for, uh, for, for nearly a week, but uh, pretty much back to normal again. I, I mean, I, I, I had fish and chips last night and, um, if that isn't an assault on your digestive system, then I don't know what is. Good effort, Dave. Neil, you're currently residing in the finest city in the world, I believe. I'm not in Barcelona, Ed, no. Uh, I'm actually in <laughs> London. Uh, for a few days, decided decided to come down here for a uh, yeah, little two-day trip after the race. I've got a few friends that live down here, so a nice opportunity to catch up. And the sun is not, well, it's shining. I think we're expecting around 30 degrees today in London, so a bit of a heat wave approaching the UK now. And uh, it's quite nice being sat here in shorts and t-shirt. Neil, do you have a new pair of earphones? Because I can't see the usual kind of 10-year-old threaded uh, wired pair that you usually have. Have you up- upgraded? <laughs> I have. Yes, exactly. The benefits of the Panic Pass podcast, Patreon tears. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you very much, uh, dear Patreon listeners and subscribers for helping keep Neil towards the uh, the 21st century. Good effort. Dave, um, you're motorized, aren't you? You've, been, you've actually skipped through the chaos of Shipple, decided to bunk the plane and got on your bike to Silverstone. And then you're going to be pretty much on two wheels for, for well, quite a while and heading towards uh, the Grand Prix of Austria. Uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, there is just, I mean... Gosh, I love motorbikes. Uh, motorbikes are genuinely really quite awesome. Um, 
yeah, this was my third race in a row on a motorbike. Uh, this afternoon, once we've finished the podcast and packed up and everything, we'll be uh, riding over to Harwich uh, to get the boat home. Fortunately, Harwich and not Dover, because uh, Dover is still a bit of a nightmare, I think, and Harwich is, uh, is not too bad. Um, from then on, well, starting so pretty much Sunday evening, I'll be start heading down to Bavaria, uh, where I'll be meeting uh, our friend and colleague Cormac GP um, on Monday night. And then Tuesday and Wednesday, we will be riding through, uh, you know, southern Germany, Austria on our way to the Red Bull Ring. And then after that, I've got a long ride home as well. So it's um, uh, it, it's lots of motorbike action for me. So I'm, uh, well, d- deliriously happy. My ideal life would be, you know, a day on the bicycle, a day on the motorbike, a day on the mo- uh, a bicycle, a day on the motorbike. But uh, that's the uh, th- th- that's that's the life goal. Yeah, sad- sadly, work gets in the way. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. If I could manage to do me work in sort of you know half, if I could knock it out in like forty five minutes of uh, uh, of an evening, then I'd be I'd be grand. But uh, forty five minutes invariably end up turning into about twelve hours. Dave, just quickly, you know, two things that might be in, of interest to the listeners. I saw you coming into the, the Silverstone Media Center wearing, uh, uh, is it the Tech Air 5? Yes, uh, it's the, the you Tech know, Air the Alpine 5. Stars, yeah, the, 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 the airbag. Um, thoughts on that. And also you've been using the 6D street helmet. Yep. Um, you know, like Fly Racing, like Rentals, uh, 6D have, you know, a street a helmet for street bikes, you know, for riding on the road, not just for off-road. Um, thoughts on, on those two things? I mean, are you finding them comfortable or pretty decent or have there been a few uh, points you'd like to see improved? No, I mean, like the, 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 the Tech Air airbag, um, when you pick it up, it's really heavy and you think it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a bit uncomfortable. Once you're wearing it, it you just literally, you don't do, it disappears. Uh, you don't notice at all. Um, it is sweaty because it is, because you're literally riding around in a plastic bag, more or less. Um, so it, it does get quite sweaty. Um, and so you do have to uh, give it a bit of a wipe down with a damp cloth, uh, uh, at frequent intervals. Um, but it's, I mean, it's really great. It's really comfortable. Um, works really well. Uh, uh, well, I mean, like, I hope it works really well, but then yeah. again, <laughs> I, I, I hope I never find out. Um, uh, and similar to the, to the 6D, I mean, like, the, the, the 6D is, you know, it's a premium helmet. It is, it, it's honestly the most comfortable, uh, helmet I've worn. Uh, previous to this, I had an RI, uh, RX7, which was an outstanding helmet, but this is, uh, like, a step above um and i mean yes it's there to protect me from from concussion should i ever have a crash but the thing is i don't want to fall off and find out uh um but yeah i mean it, it's great it's it, it's well it's well designed it's well put together uh i mean if there's a minor niggle i've, fit, I've fitted a uh, an intercom system to it and then getting the cheek pad it, uh, back in is is a bit of a fiddle and i'm uh, it's the sort of thing that i'm actually not very good at i would make a terrible helmet tech uh, uh, you know, there would basically be like you know, an hour and a half break between sessions while I prepared uh, prepared a new helmet instead of about the minute and thirty <laughs> seconds that the, uh, the, the the professionals do. So uh, yeah, no, but I mean, g- g- genuinely very, very, very pleased. So um, yeah, looking looking forward to to riding down to uh, uh, to Austria. Well, listen, without any further ado, round 12 of 20 at MotoGP um, at Silverstone, the Monster Energy British Grand Prix. Uh, Neil, what was your your moment of the weekend? Uh, I think my moment of the weekend had to be the final 
lap pass that uh, Enea Bastianini put on Jorge Martin. I thought it was uh, one of the rides of the day. I think uh, a lot of the uh, focus was rightly on the guys that finished on the podium. I mean, each of those guys had outstanding races, but I think um, Enea Bastianini might just topped a lot of them, uh, considering that he uh, had his wing, his left wing broken off in the first corner in a collision with uh, Jorge Martin, who pushed him into Marco Bezzecchi. And uh, I think he had to come back from... 13th at one point um or 11th i think it was 11th. and then he sorry it was 11th yeah he was 11th on lap nine and basically made like just pretty radical progress late into the race and it it did make you wonder if uh if that wing wasn't broken could he have even caught uh the leader such as uh his late race speed we haven't seen bastianini this good since uh uh, since Le Mans, where he last had his victory, he'd gone missing basically for four races and uh, the fact that the move was on jorge martin when those guys are locked in this uh, interesting battle for Ducati's second factory seat, which will be decided after the Austrian Grand Prix. I mean, the timing off it felt quite critical. Um, so I thought it was, uh, yeah, great ride for Bastianini, fantastic move. And uh, the fact that it was Martin that he passed, I think must have uh, tasted extra sweet for him. So um, Martin's reaction after the race, I think, said everything you need to know about how he felt about being passed by uh, the Italian yeah, I mean, Bastianini actually sort of downplayed it all. Oh, no, that's not so important. You know, there's lots of other factors which are important, but um, he did have a very smug look on his face. Um, he, he was lucky that it was his, um, uh, what was it? Hang on, a left wing that got uh, knocked off uh, because there aren't very many left, uh, left-handers left around uh, Silverstone. It's mostly uh, right-handers. Um, and he said, like in the left, he could feel the, the, the front pushing and the front sliding. And that was where he was, ha- uh, that was where he was having the problem. But because it's a left-hand court, uh, it's a left-hand circuit. Um, it affected him much less. If you compare it to, say, I think Luca Marini at Assen, where he lost the right, he lost the right wing at a right-handed circuit. He, he said, you know, the bike was almost unrideable. It was really, really difficult. So the, these sort of things can also rely on luck. But it was an amazing ride by Bastianini. Was it also Miguel Oliveira? Is it was in Catalonia? I think where he lost the the side pod or a wing as well that pretty much inhibited his race. So I know we want to keep this section of the show brief, guys, but Neil, do we really believe that that second factory Ducati seat is still open and has to be decided? I find it, you know, impossible that, to, to believe that Ducati would keep these two guys hanging. I mean, you think someone like Carlo Bonat or, you know, the various representatives, each riders will be knocking on Giabatti's door every five minutes wanting to know something. Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's entirely reasonable that it's still open because there's been extenuating factors. I mean, if you're looking at the championship, it's it's obvious that it goes to Bastianini, but Bastianini's on a year old bike, a bike that hasn't really need to be developed, needed to be developed. And uh, okay, it's uh, the development has stood still, but from the start of the year, he had a, a very very well sorted machine. Whereas uh, Jorge Martin is on a a different Ducati from the factory guys. Um, he's never really been able to feel completely comfortable with it. And uh, he's had a sort of myriad of uh, fitness issues as well. Um, and, you know, Bastianini's form before the summer break was awful. I mean, it was really, really bad. He did go missing essentially for an entire month. And in that time, Martin was scoring some pretty impressive results, uh, notably that second place in Catalonia. So I think um, I think they were correct in not rushing into this. And to give Martin a bit of benefit of the doubt, we're going now to Austria afterwards, where 
Um, he has been sensational in the past, scored his first MotoGP win last year as a rookie. Um, so let's see how he can performs there. But I, I really don't think this is an easy decision. Uh, coming to my moment of the weekend, I want to stay with Ducati and uh, talk a bit about Johan Zarco because uh, you, basically shattering the lap record, taking pole position, leading out front. I do wonder, this is uh, six seasons now for the Frenchman still to score a first win in MotoGP. Uh, I, I do wonder if it's starting to come a little bit of a monkey on his back. Um, you know, is, is he ever going to win a race? When's it going to come? You know, no. is there more pressure now? <laughs> All right. Easy on the cynicism, Dave. I haven't finished yet. Um <laughs> You know, I, I just, every time he hits the front, I wonder if that's going to be something that's playing on his mind, especially as he gets towards the end of a race. I know riders are completely in the zone and they're focusing very much on the moment, but, you know, it's just been such a long streak now. Um, also for Zarco, his record at Silverstone seems to be particularly bad. Uh, you know, he crashed there in 2019, taking out Miguel Oliveira in the process, um, actually causing the Portuguese to have a, a pretty hefty shoulder injury. And then I think in 2021, last year, in fact, he finished 11th, which was uh, hardly a result of note. So I think the moral of the story is don't put your chips on Johan, even if he is shattering lap records uh, when, when we go to Silverstone next August. So that was mine. Dave, I know we're going in a little bit of a reverse chrono chronology here, but um, what was your moment? I mean, uh, my moment of the weekend was um, Alessio Spargaro, um, that massive crash he had in FP4, the start of FP4 um, at uh, Farm, turn 12, it came, you know, the the, the, the rear came around on him, uh, spat him off, it was an extremely or, uh, uh, ugly crash, uh, and he was lying on the asphalt for a long time. It was lying on the side of the track for a long time. It took a long time to get up. It was actually great to see him actually get up and, and be walk. And, uh, when, well, I mean, I wouldn't really call it walking. It was more hobbling. Um, but at least he was moving around. At least he had, it was clear he had the, sort of the use of everything. Uh, after the race, we found out that he'd um, sort of fractured his heel. Uh, they didn't spot his it. right heel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He did, did, didn't spot it immediately. Um, up until that point, it looked like Alicia Spargaro had this weekend. Uh, I wouldn't quite say in the bag, but I mean, he was absolutely the favorite for, uh, for, for the race. Um, he, he had an opportunity to really uh, start to make inroads with Fabio Quartararo, with Quartararo having a long lap penalty. Um, but he managed to, sp to spit himself off. Now, riders will always make mistakes. They'll always crash, um, at some point or other. Um, but the, the timing of this crash was particularly, uh, it was particularly unfortunate. Um, he got away with it. He only ends, he ends up losing just one point to Fabio Quartararo because Quartararo had such an absolute, um, uh, nightmare during the race. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really feels like a, a, a lost opportunity. Um, and it, it you know, rider error going out uh hard tires uh temperatures not quite there it was on his second flying lap um yeah rear just sort of lets go and then grips and then spits him off well, let's launch into our talking points from the grand prix um i'll go first because it's quite generic but i wanted to talk or discuss or get your guys views on silverstone generally um for me, I left the hotel maybe just before 7 a.m. You know, I thought, okay, this might take me an hour to get in. And I was pretty surprised and also maybe a little sad to be, you know, fully parked up and walking into the media center by 7.30. Uh, you know, the, the run into the circuit was as if it was a Thursday. 
Um, so then it was like a little alarm bell there where I thought, okay, maybe the crowd's not going to be so big. I contacted Silverstone actually in the run up to the Grand Prix, um, you know, through Potsky Media, the agency are doing a fine job of um, doing the, the press and PR for the circuit. And uh, an official statement came through from them that they were not expecting the same size crowd as 2021, which they put partly down to Valentino Rossi's last British Grand Prix. I mean, let's not forget that Rossi is one of the most winningest riders of the British Grand Prix um, in, in recent times. And they were looking more towards a 2019 type crowd, which I think was just over 100,000 um, for, for, the, for the weekend. Um, I think it totaled more than that this time, but we only had a crowd of 41,000 and which, you know, at a circuit with such uh, huge epic scale and capabilities to house far more people as Silverstone is so spread out, it, it, it's almost next to nothing, isn't it? I mean, it, it doesn't look particularly impressive. So it's, um, it's a curious thing because I love the track. I think it's a, a fantastic racing circuit. It seems to have a little bit of everything. And I think, you know, those first corners, Cops through Maggots, Beckett, um, Chapel, I think it is. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's fantastic to watch straight into Hangar Straight. It's very wide. And then we were asking a lot of riders about it in the media debrief, as we tend to do every year. Um, and it's interesting to get opinions of new guys, people like Ralph Fernandez, Remy Gardner, Luca Marini. Uh, you know, a rider who was coming back to Silverstone for the second time after tasting MotoGP or what it's like on a MotoGP bike for the first time in 2021. And just to hear their words about how they like to atta attack the surface and, you know, the layout. Uh, it's a track that still has great grip after the resurfacing, of course. And, and just look at the, the, the races that we had on the Sunday. Um, I think the, the cumulative, cumulative time between all three classes in terms of winning distance was uh, 0.8 of a second. And I think there was not, uh, there wasn't a gap bigger between all three podium finishes in every class more than half a second, 0 0.6 or something. I mean, you can't get closer racing than that. Even if it's quite clear that Peko Bagnaia is going to be incredibly difficult to pass and Maverick Vignali's made a couple of mistakes on the last lap and he thought, okay, he's screwed it up. Even you could tell that from when he went wide into cops. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's great stuff. It's, it's gripping stuff. Uh, I think if you're at the track and you have, I mean, there's a great commentary team there as well, Gavin Emmett and, and, and Neil Hodgson and them taking the feed from directly from BT Sports. Uh, I think, you know, you have entertainment. Um, you know, there are other factors involved, of course. It's an earlier date, ticket prices. Um, Dave and you and I were discussing this on the Paddock Pass podcast note show, but having a parking fee that's almost 50% of the entry fee seems a bit excessive. Uh, so it's just a shame that there's not more people there. And I think 2021, the bigger attendance not only was because of Rossi, but because people were wowed by that finish by Alex Rins and Mark Marquez. Um, hopefully now people will have seen the clips on social media or through the TV or some sort of screen and thought, wow, you know, Silverstone delivers some pretty good action and they'll come next year. So um, I just wonder what you guys thought. I mean, do do is Silverstone an essential part of MotoGP? Should it always be there? Uh, for me, it's one of the um, it's one of the the great motorcycle racing circuits. I mean, uh, the the absolute pinnacle you have Philip Island and Mugello. Uh, just below that, you have um, Assen, Silverstone, um, maybe Barcelona. Barcelona's a bit uh, uh, not quite at the same level, but you know, it, it, it it's that kind of, that kind of idea. So yeah, I mean, it, it's. Absolutely, just a, I mean, it's perfect for motorcycle racing. In fact, to my idea, it's much better for motorcycle racing than it is for cars, for F1, because, um, you know, it flows. It's a really flowing circuit, and that's what you need when, when you've got motorcycle racing. It's flat. 
Um, it's a long way from public transport links. Um, it's uh, because the parking, that's really expensive. Also, they've moved it. Instead of it being uh, the last weekend in, weekend in August, which is the bank holiday weekend, which is traditionally uh, the last weekend before people go back to school and so everyone is back at home, uh, the beginning of August means it's right in the middle of the school, the school holiday, so you would expect a lot of people to be away. I definitely think the absence of Valentina Rossi made a difference. Um, I, I think that the absence of Mark Marcus probably made a difference as well. Um, you know, the, 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 those two are, I mean, you know, Valentina Rossi is, uh, you don't, well, there's no point in saying he's a big name because that's, that would be to vastly underestimate it. But Mark Marcus has got a lot of star power as well. He's got a lot of pulling power. Um, there are, the, the, I think the spectator, um, experience, uh, is more difficult. It's a very, very big circuit. It's, you know, it's absolutely huge. So walking around it is difficult. There aren't very many viewing spots apart from the grandstands. You really need to be in a grandstand to be able to, to see stuff. What they really need is some of the earth banks like they have around Assen to, uh, uh, you know, to, to give people, get people sort of, you know, two, three meters up off the, off the ground so they could see over the track. But, um, yeah, it's a, I think there were lots and lots and lots of reasons why crowds were low. Uh, and it's a shame because it's just it's just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I think it's a it's a shame to see those numbers, especially when you compare it to the Formula One race that was at Silverstone um, a little more than a month ago. I mean, um, the crowd that showed up on Sunday for MotoGP was uh, more than a hundred thousand less than F1. I think they had hundred and forty two thousand fans through the gates on race day, which is a, a staggering number and sort of reflects the kind of position that Formula One is in at the moment with, uh, you know, riding on the success of the Netflix show and um, I guess, you know, a fairly, fairly exciting uh, title fight. Um, you know, some big names in the sport, I think, as David has mentioned, at MotoGP at the moment, I mean, I think any sport would struggle to deal with the loss of its two biggest characters. You know, Ross is retired, Marquez isn't here. You know, if you took Federer and Nadal out of tennis, would it be the same sport? If you took Hamilton and Verstappen out of Formula One, would it really be the same thing? Um, so I think that is that is an element. Um, and then just looking at the, the kind of the ticket prices, I mean, it wasn't cheap to get to, to Silverstone this year. Um, you know, there is the cost of living crisis at the moment. Um, and looking at a lot of grandstands, you look at 100 pounds plus to uh to sit there um for for the weekend so i mean like that's a it's a pretty sizable amount of money um to go and as dave said the spectator experience at silverstone isn't maybe as uh as good as it would be at uh, maybe like a jerez or a barcelona or a Mugello where you can get really close to the action um at you know quite ex exciting points on the track i mean i've um, spoken to people that have gone to Silverstone before as spectators and watched the Ron de Maggots Beckett's complex and I mean it's a fabulous piece of racetrack and it's really exciting to watch um, the trackside cameras there picking up the speeds that the guys are doing as they hurtle towards those bends but I think as a spectator you're way way back it's flat maybe just doesn't have that same kind of uh, impression of speed when you're watching so far away um, so I wonder if that's a, a factor as well um, so yeah, I was I was disappointed because when I was walking around the track, our commentary boxes were on the outside of the final turn at Woodcote Corner, and when I was walking there on Saturday morning, I mean it was rammed around there. Um, but obviously, it just seemed that uh, the, the the fans were concentrated in that part of the in that part of the track. So um, yeah, disappointed to see just forty one thousand there on Sunday. 
Yeah, there's a couple, a couple of good points now. I mean, certainly about the, the personalities involved. I mean, when it comes to comparisons to Formula One, then it's probably the most stark location where you can make that comparative view because Formula One also is like the spiritual home of, um, of Silverstone is rather the spiritual home of Formula One, isn't it? I mean, they've always had big crowds there. The British Racing Drivers Club has such a large presence at Silverstone. Um, I also saw a lot of people gathered around Woodcote, um, you know, the Monster Energy area where they had kind of extreme sports going on, BMX displays. There's, there's quite a large interactive area. I mean, there's, and of course, the music stage, there's things going on, I guess. So you can get sort of extra value for money for your ticket if you're prepared to wander around and do that stuff. But I think it was just um, kind of a perfect storm of timing. I mean, in the UK, they've just had the the Women's European Football Championship that sort of had took a lot of attention. Maybe people were getting out to see that. Uh, the Grand Prix coincided in the same weekend as the launch of the Premier League football season. Uh, because they're starting earlier due to the FIFA World Cup happening in Qatar at the winter, so they have to take a break. I just wonder if, um, you know, and also let's not forget after the pandemic, perhaps two summers where people were reluctant to travel, now they have a little bit more, um, or it's easier to do so. So perhaps people are away and getting away. It's, uh, I, I think, you know, Silverstone perhaps just slipped down the list of priorities. But, um, but like you mentioned, Dave, and also Neil, for spectators, it's, it's either, uh, I think you love it or you kind of can live without it. But I think it's, um, it's amazing. It's a place with really rich history. And I just hope it's sort of, you know, there's not people counting the, the money in an office somewhere now thinking, Oof, you know, we're, we're going to be struggling for MotoGP again next year. Let's perhaps reduce our investment or whatever. Um, you know, keep going, guys, because it's, um, it's a great event. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, I think one of the lessons here is just what a difference Drive to Survive has made for F1. Um, you know, they're getting a hundred million views. Uh, someone told me on uh, on each episode of Drive to Survive, and it's brought in masses and masses of new fans. Uh, and it sort of shows the uh, failure of MotoGP Unlimited that's made, that that it managed to capture that same uh, sort of uh, spirit and uh, an atmosphere. Um, it, I mean, MotoGP, it, I used to feel good about MotoGP knowing that uh, in terms of sort of, you know, media vibe, social media buzz, uh, MotoGP was streets ahead. But we now feels like we've really, really fallen badly behind. And I think MotoGP it, it is a little bit in trouble, especially coinciding with the loss of Valentino Rossi, who was such a big name. Uh, and then also losing Mark Marcus to injury at the same time. That's a bit of a problem. Um, I mean, in terms of personality, like Fabio has a bit of personality. Jack Miller is a massive personality. Uh, Pekin Bernier is a lovely lad, um, but quite introverted, very closed. Um, they, everything is very... Uh, everything has been a bit sort of corporated down. People are a bit afraid of, uh, of saying things. So I think, um, I, I think there is cause for concern. But then you look, if you, you know, you go and look at, you look at Lamar with 110,000 people. You look at, um, uh, Saxon Ring, which was also, I think, 100,000 people, 105,000 at, uh, at Aston. So it's not all bad news, but, um, yeah, there there has to be there has to be more, and I think especially in the UK, it's going to be a bit of a problem. Well, also the Grand Prix, I think, was the first time since two thousand and ten where there was not a British rider on the Silverstone grid. You know, either in a full time or a wild card capacity. So that, that also perhaps has something to do with it. I think the people that did go to Silverstone or were on the edge of buying a ticket but didn't are quite informed. I mean, they know they have the Brits have 
rookies like Josh Watley and Scott Ogden, Jake Dixon, you know, he's, he's another Marmite figure, um, you know, he's, he's as likely to try and fight for a podium and he did make it and was incredibly close to the win actually in Moto2. So that there are hopes for the British crowd. It's not like there's a complete dearth of racing talent there. But uh, yeah, I mean, you're right, Dave. Uh, it's, it's the MotoGP Unlimited thing. You know, I think Dorna needs to have some sort of update. They need to give some sort of news. Does, does it stay on Amazon? Does the project continue? Can they get on Netflix? Uh, whatever else. I think that's um, it's, it's becoming quite a powerful asset now and they need to make some sort of movement there. Um, I spent a week in, in the UK before I went on to Silverstone uh, just catching up with some friends that I hadn't seen, some of whom I hadn't seen since uh, the pandemic started really. And one of them <clears throat> was kind of asking me just about MotoGP in general and he mentioned that he had watched I think the previous race that was shown on ITV at the Saxon Ring. Um, and he said that he turned it on and he was like, I don't know any of these names. And, you know, before I think for even a person with only a small, small, small knowledge of the sport, they would turn it on, they would automatically recognize Rossi, Marquez, Lorenzo, maybe Davizioso, Pedroza, you know, huge big names. And I don't think at the moment there is that um, that instant recognition for people that don't really have a, a, a firm interest in the sport. Not yet anyway. Um, obviously, it depends on country to country. You know, France, obviously, there's a huge buzz around Fabio, rightly so. He's the world champion, France's first ever MotoGP world champion. Um, but I think in <clears throat> a country like the UK where MotoGP does sort of feature fairly down, far down the order in terms of, you know, the popularity of, of sports in general. Um, yeah, at the moment, there isn't that automatically recognizable figure that is, you know, you're uh, someone that's just going to put tens of... Tens of tens of thousands of bums on seats, you know. Maybe there isn't that name at the moment, and um, you know, I hope that, you know, I think that's why everyone is really hoping that Mark can come back sooner rather than later and be as competitive as he was in the past, because we sort of need him there to, you know, not just um, display what he he displays with his brilliance on track, but maybe just stir things up a bit, like he he always did in the past as well. Neil, you're a marquee name and that's why everybody's going to come and join us right after this first ad break where we'll get to your talking point from the British Grand Prix. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes, from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're talking about Silverstone. Uh, Neil, what stood out for you? And I, I know your topic already, and I just want to ask if you're really prepared to go there. Because, you know, it's um, something that we've talked about numerously over the years, and it's a bit of a minefield. Uh, what's your latest thoughts on Maverick Vinales? It's the Maverick minefield, <clears throat> and I'm going to go there, Ed. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you could be smug because you were tipping him for victory uh, on Thursday. Oh, I'm yeah. never smug. I'm never <laughs> smug. Come on. Yeah, um, but he didn't He didn't win, Ed, so you can wipe that smug smile off your face. Oh, was it like this? Or was it like this? I'm not sure how far away he was from victory. Again, okay. that's probably one for our video viewers on YouTube, but I think it was um, probably the width of my laptop. Okay, right. I don't know whether you were describing the the width of your smile there when you were uh, when you were doing that, but um, yeah, I think um, Vinales was was probably the big talking point from the weekend, um, just because it was the the best performance that we've seen from him so far in uh, in MotoGP. I think it was the first time um, 
sorry, the best performance we've seen from him so far in Aprilia in MotoGP. It was the first time that we had seen him as like the fastest guy on board uh, the Aprilia. You know, at Aston, he was really impressed if he got that third place, but there was the caveat that Quadrar crashed out in front of him. Aleix was taken out in front of him. And um, he was a little lucky that Jack Miller didn't quite take the podium. I think, you know, there's a few things there where you could say if it played out differently, Maverick would have been fifth or fifth or sixth. But here, I think there was no doubt that he was the quickest guy on track, maybe along with Bastianini in the final laps. He was aggressive. He was fast. He was t- overtaking people um, with kind of impressive regularity. Um, and I mean, we could just notice, I think, from Thursday that um, he was sort of, he was striding around he was smiling and there wasn't that kind of maybe i wouldn't say fake optimism but it's sort of he has been like in a good sort of uh, he's been in high spirits all year he's been talking up his chances quite a lot but i don't know i didn't there was a few times where i just thought i'm not sure i believe exactly what you're saying you know but now and this weekend i certainly had the impression that um he believed in himself and he believed that he could not win a race and he kept on saying it's only a matter of time and i think after this this um, this race you have to say that it maybe is only a matter of time before he starts winning with aprilia um because he's found that he's found that sweet spot with the bike um i spoke to paolo bonora um aprilia's racing manager after the race and he said they made a a setup change with the chassis and with electronics at the saxon ring which basically allowed maverick to um enter corners smoother um and that's really helped him particularly on his fast lap times maverick was really struggling at the start of the year in qualifying that isn't such an issue now he qualified in the front row here this weekend um and i think everyone secretly was kind of had their fingers crossed for him when he was fighting with banya at the end he didn't quite make it but i think um you know mac is back i think that is the story from silverstone that's the takeaway do we also have to give him some credit because this, he's been on the bike less than a season? He joined Aprilia in pretty emotionally turbulent circumstances. Uh, I'm trying to think of l- riders before who have changed manufacturers and, and managed to be near victory quite so quickly. I mean, if you look at supposedly the aliens, I mean, Casey Stoner obviously moved from, you know, Ducati to Honda, had a, a winning start. You know, Jorge Lorenzo took a half season with the Ducati before he was able to post victory. But season and a half, season and a half, season and a season half. half. Sorry, yes, yeah, missed the first year. So, you know, I think the fact that Maverick is right on the edge, two podiums in a row now, um, is also a testament to to his skill. And it's very interesting listening to Alessia Spargaro these last couple of weeks because he's in a championship winning position, as we know. And Maverick really is being like the team player, isn't he? He's embracing this family atmosphere at Aprilia and he's pushing for Aprilia. It's not just a Maverick Vinales show. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you saw him towing Alesha around in free practice. Uh, I think, you know, he's he's stated as well that he wants Aprilia to win the world championship. Um, it's, it's a very, I think, conducive environment there for him to do well because he has been one of those riders where when as soon as things start to look a little pear-shaped, uh, as soon as there's some sort of trouble on the horizon, then he just sinks into this funk or this depression where he just wallows. Uh, and then Adia, of course, was, you know, uh, last year with, with Yamaha and then trying to blow up the bike around Red Bull Ring, which we go to next. So it's been a very sort of strange 12 month of Maverick Vinales. I mean, he must have been really going through some serious ups and downs. But I agree with you now. I mean, I really hope this is a big renaissance and we're finally going to see. I mean, there's there's fewer riders on the grid that can pick up and really find traction like Maverick Vinales. Um, and uh, he seems to be really gelling with the Aprilia to the point where we're going to see an explosion of results. 
I think, um, you know, we just have to sort of doff your hat to Massimo Rivola and his Aprilia team. Um, it wasn't so long ago that we were saying that Aprilia couldn't find uh, a suitable backup for Alessio Spargro. And part of the reason was because of the ongoings in the Aprilia garage. You got the impression that it was a bit slapdash. It was a bit wild. It wasn't a great amount of organization. There wasn't very good man management. You think back to Sam Lowe's when he was in that team in 2017. Uh, Scott Redding. Scott Redding. What was his comments at the uh, at the Red Bull ring that year? Uh, you wouldn't believe some of the things that are going on behind the, the closed garage doors. They shouldn't be happening in a factory team, something along those lines. Um, and I think their, their uh, approach with Maverick has been absolutely spot on. Um, that was one of the interesting moments, I think, in the MotoGP Unlimited series, whenever Maverick was being um, unveiled at the Noali factory and we saw Massimo Rivola was basically telling all of the engineers like, you know, make this guy feel welcome, make this guy feel at home, make this guy feel loved. That was another thing that Paolo Benora said to me on Sunday. He said, you know, we recognize that he's a very, very sensitive rider and a sensitive person and he needs that kind of love. He needs that sort of warmth. He needs to feel trusted. And he said he's made it absolutely clear that every person in Maverick's garage um, has had to make an effort to ensure that he trusts them um, because it was clear that wasn't the case in Yamaha. You know, he felt it was kind of a, uh, he was uh, all alone in, um, in in this kind of factory that maybe didn't quite have his back. Um, you know, I really have been very patient with him. Results at the start of the year were iffy, some decent results, but some not so decent results. And when Espargaro was picking up regular podiums, um, you know, I think it would have been understandable, I think, if Aprilia maybe looked elsewhere for 2023. Um, I think some of us were actually expecting them to look elsewhere, especially when Alex Rins and Joanne Mir came in the market. Um, but I think the fact that they decided to stick with Maverick, sign him up for 2023 and 2024. I mean, that must have been a massive confidence boost for him to help him feel settled. And they they, they just believed in him. Um, and we know he's still got some faults. We know that he isn't the absolute finished article in terms of race wins. We even saw that on Sunday. I mean, he should have won the race on Sunday, but I think he didn't quite get his last lap just absolutely right. There were two clear mistakes there which prevented him from um, prevented him from catching and overtaking Banya again. Um, but I think just their Aprilia's role and um, yeah, their management of him has been absolutely second to none. And uh, you know, it's just such a change from how they used to do things. You know, just a couple of years ago, again, you know, Massimo Rolla turned out to be pretty much the star of the season. I think. Uh, yeah, uh, the reason they kept Maverick is because this is something that we, as journalists and as fans, uh, don't see, we can't see the data. We can't see what, uh, Maverick is capable, what all of these riders are capable of. Uh, team managers will talk to engineers. Uh, they'll talk to, um, uh, you know, they'll, they'll talk to crew chiefs. They'll talk to all the rest of it. And they will look at the data. They'll examine the data and they'll be able to see like, okay, yeah, he can do this and he can do this and this. And he may not be able to do it for an entire lap. Uh, and he may not be able to do it for an entire race, but, um, it does mean that, uh, you know, it does show that, that these, that he's capable of something. Um, I mean, we were talking about this after the race, Neil. Um, uh, I was defending him and you were attacking him, but, uh, and I actually sort of came around to your way of thinking that I think, um, Maverick's weakness is that he 
doesn't know. I mean, like the use to say about Maverick Vinales is he can't overtake. He can overtake. He's very good at overtaking. It's just that um, his racecraft is not uh, where it needs to be. He was um, letting perfectly good chances to overtake go without actually overtaking, without actually you know, ha- having a go. Um, and I think that's one of the areas that he needs to, needs to improve. Also, he was like, you know, sort of like making lunges where there was absolutely no point where it, where it was not going to happen. That is also, I think, why he made the mistakes in the last lap. So, um, yeah, to me, I think if he can improve his overtaking, if he can have that killer instinct, if you compare it, for example, for Mark Marquez, Mark Marquez, he knows exactly which gap he can go for. He, he sees a gap. He instinctively under, uh, understands that this is the gap that I need and that I can exploit and takes it. Maverick Vinyala sort of like likes to, he's, he sees a gap. He ha- likes to have a little bit of a think about a gap. He likes to look at it from all perspectives. And at that point, it's too late and he can't make the pass. So I think um, if he can move that, um, if he can improve that, then, he, you know, genuinely improve, uh, it, he's, going to be a threat but I also think um, that he is 100% going to win races but also you know he's been so weak at the starts I mean that's also been a very very clear vulnerability for Maverick and um, you know I think he's one of the riders particularly through you know Saturday in Q1 and Q2 if he can't get well placed on the grid then he's going to be struggling I do wonder if that's something he can address slightly easier on the Aprilia compared to the Yamaha yeah, I mean, he seems to be pretty adamant that, um, you know, he's, he's sort of found a cure for that. Um, you know, on Sunday, he didn't get the best start. I don't think he used the uh, the start device um, because he felt that uh, he just felt a little bit uncomfortable um, about where it would engage because obviously turn one isn't a heavy braking zone um, at Silverstone. The start wasn't great. It does take him a little while to build into races. I mean, we know this. This is this was something that we saw repeatedly and countless number of times with uh, with the Yamaha. Um, but I just think that with the Aprilia, it's such a good package, and with his team sort of defending his corner, um, I just think we're going to see him having more opportunities where he is um, fast. You know, I can see a couple of tracks uh, from now until the end of the calendar where he's going to be maybe in the fight for the victory. Um, which is tremendous. I mean, it's great for Aprilia, it's great for Alicia Spargo, and it's absolute confirmation that, um, you know, the package that they they have is, you know, maybe on a similar level to Ducati because it's not just one rider now that can challenge it for victories. Um, a question for you both, and it's a big one. So, um, you know, if you don't really want to tackle it then fully, then don't worry. But looking at the results and what happened in Silverstone, and I don't also want to over-dramatize this, but do we think that for the first time since maybe the early 1960s, the Japanese power grip on MotoGP is fading faster or more heavily than ever? If you look at the top 10 at Silverstone, there was only two Japanese bikes in the top 10, um, down in seventh and eighth positions. Uh, you know, the, the emergence of Aprilia, um, KTM are getting better, uh, we know we know there's a lot of Ducatis on the grid. Um, European manufacturers not only have the technology, but you know if you listen to the likes of Paul Spargaro, they have a working culture for Europeans that just seems to to click to work. Um, perhaps that is really going to be the you know perhaps the the basis, the power basis of MotoGP is shifting. I think it was Matt Burt uh, who said on the World Feed, um, the commentator, of course, extremely knowledgeable, does a great job. That um, you know, the Ducati has been on every MotoGP podium since Silverstone 2021. I mean, that's an, an incredible record, and we know 
um, how well the Italian factory have developed the Desmos Adici. And um, it just seems like there is a bit of a tidal shift going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Andrea Dovizioso was, as always, very interesting after the race, and he, and he pointed to this, and he basically said, you know, um, it's the approach. And it's not something new. It's not something from the last couple of years. It's been like the past five years. Um, what's happening is there is limited testing, um, and, and as there is less testing, there are less opportunities for the factory riders to actually ride, uh, ride the bikes. Um, that means that you have to take a much more aggressive approach to racing. This is something that uh, uh, Gigi Delinia said to me uh, in Barcelona when I interviewed him there. Um, interviews on the on the website. It's absolutely worth reading. Um, is that he said, "Look, we." We need as much data as we can. And, and the, one of the big changes that he made when he came was uh, to actually be more aggressive about trying new things. He said, we were riding around at the back, um, but people were afraid of trying new things because they were afraid the bike would break down. Um, and, you know, if the bike is break down in, in 12th place, then what's, what's the difference between a DNF? Do you know what I mean? Uh, better to, 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 to try things out, to try to make progress, uh, to try to improve, um, uh, suffer the bike breaking down. Um, but then at least you're making progress. And the European manufacturers have been much, much more aggressive about that. It also helps that they are based in, the, in Europe. But also, if you look at the level of, of, of test riders that, uh, that, that they've brought brought in um you know michele piero has been uh, outstanding i mean like aprilia to an extent they've been uh, fortunate because they have um uh they've been able they've had concessions that they've been able to do you know test and develop uh, throughout the season uh, ktm brought in danny pedrosa which was a big thing so they had mika calio who is already a very good rider in his own right and Danny Pedrosa, you know, Danny Pedrosa, a multiple, ra uh, multiple race winner. Uh, we saw Ducati chasing Casey Stoner as a, t used to chase Casey Stoner briefly as a test rider. Uh, then we saw here, um, uh, them use Michele Piro. Um, when Piro sort of understood that he was, it was going to be hard for him to get a full time ride, he, he accepted. And the level of Piro is just exceptional. And all of these things have, have meant that it's, uh, that much easier for the European manufacturers to, to make advance. And the Japanese manufacturers have been much, much more conservative. They don't like bringing new updates. They don't like trying things during the races. Uh, they, they don't like making big steps. I mean, we've seen Honda make this massive step with the, with the brand new Honda. It's completely designed, you know, with the new RC213V. And that, I think, has been uh, quite a revolution for them. So it's been, it's been quite radical for them. So it is genuinely, I think, um, they will need to change their approach. They need to become, the Japanese manufacturers need to become a lot more aggressive about their testing programs, about their development programs, about trying new things, bringing new things to races just to try, and and uh, they're spending a lot more time testing in Europe. I think we can see that, uh, you know, Yamaha, uh, one of the Japanese factories, is is maybe going down the path that 
say Aprilia have looked at, they've brought in an ex-Formula One engineer to work on their engine for next year. That's something that Aprilia has done in the past. Maybe it's like not just looking from within for expertise um, on how they can go forward. Um, as Dave said, that sort of conservative in-house uh, approach that the the Japanese factories tend to take. The only thing is, Ad, I mean, I, I agree. Like, I think um, uh, what we saw at the Saxon Ring, sorry, not the Saxon Ring, at Assen, we had no Japanese bike in the top seven. I think it was the first time that's happened in MotoGP or Premier Class Race since 1969. Um, again, on Sunday um, at Silverstone, we had no... Um, I think uh, Alex Rins was the the only guy in the top seven from a Japanese manufacturer. This isn't going to, I think, really change next year because Suzuki are obviously withdrawing. Yamaha will only have two bikes and then we'll have four Hondas. So six Japanese ma- uh, machines on the grid against, um, you know, just a, a, a swarth of, of Ducatis and, and four Aprilias now uh, expanding as well as four KTMs. So... Um, yeah, this isn't something that's going to change next year. Sorry, two KTMs and two gas gas machines, Dave, were you going to say? <laughs> no, no, no. I was going to say Mark Marquez, um, if he's back and he's fit, then uh, again, we get a completely distorted picture because, you know, it's Mark Marquez. Well, so, you know, if you're Honda and you're Yamaha, if you have Quattara and you have Marquez, then, you know, that kind of philosophy of why do we need anybody else? I mean, it's falling down when they're not there, of course. And Dave, I mean, you, you say that this shift has been happening maybe for five years, but a European manufacturer still hasn't won the title for 15 years now. So, and it, it could very much happen again this year that Fabio Quattararo defends his crown and Yamaha, you know, in the top spot. And theoretically could as well next year with only two bikes on the grid. Yeah, but I mean, who has won the championship in the past uh, in the past few years? I mean, first, well, Mark Marquez, right? And I don't think anyone would uh, claim that it was definitely Honda rather than Mark that won those championships. <laughs> um, we saw Joan Mir have an exceptional 2020, but 2020 was such a weird year uh, that it distorted the entire picture. And again, Mark Marquez wasn't there. Uh, we saw uh, Fabio Jorge Lorenzo. Yeah, 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 exactly. Fabio Quartararo, um, in, uh, in, in 2021, uh, when, when Quartararo really made a step to be so much better than everyone else. Uh, so yeah, to me, I think that is, uh, you, you can't take the right, or you have to be careful about taking the rider out of the equation because, uh, the, the riders are making a lot of difference here. Well, we're going to enter the second ad break now when we come back for the last talking point of the weekend and then we'll pick our winners and losers from the British Grand Prix. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race-spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets, and six different diameters, all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the last segment of the Paddock Pass podcast. Dave, you're going to highlight how some riders really underestimated the the temperatures at Silverstone. It was sunny in the UK and, you know, there was, there was, a, there was a lack of preparation. I'm not talking about sun cream. No, I mean, the thing is, so in the run up to every race weekend, what the uh, race engineers do is they sit down, they go through a lot of the data from last year and they sort of like think, okay, what we, and then they match it up against the tire allocation, which they've got from Michelin and start to make a plan. Because the thing is, you've got uh, three lots of 45 minutes of free practice, FP1 through FP through. 
uh, that's not really 45 minutes. It's basically three lots of half an hour because you've got 15 minutes of uh, trying to set a fast uh, time. And especially a track like Silverstone, which is really, really long. Um, then you've got half an hour of FP4, which is the only time you can actually do the, do some work on your tyres. So you don't really get a chance to try to put together, uh, uh, you know, to properly assess each particular, the strength and weaknesses of, uh, of each tyre. So you have to go in to the weekend with a plan. This is what we're going to try. You have to make some assumptions. Um, the, I, I think the teams and the engineers made some assumptions, and one of the assumptions that they made was that um, the track was not going to be 20 degrees hotter than last year. Um, and so everyone looked at the medium uh, rear, which is what everyone was racing last year. Um, so, for example, Fabio Quattararo, um it, it didn't touch the heart at all. Uh, Pekka Banyaya looked completely lost you know he looks oh i won't say completely lost but you know it looked like if he uh, i i think um if you looked at his pace based on up to about fp4 you were thinking you know if he gets top seven he'll have salvaged something you no one was thinking you know fabio has totally got this um uh, uh, and again he didn't touch the, the the hard rear tire. They didn't touch the hard rear tire until until the morning. The, the, uh, the, there was only a few riders who actually tried it. Joan Zarco was one of them, and that was why Joan Zarco was one of the riders who looked like he was going to just totally get away with this, totally uh, totally control the race. It was why we were all saying, "I think he, uh, I think he's got that." Um, and then what you saw was a whole lot of riders switched to the, uh, the the hard for the race. Also, because the track temperature was even higher, ambient temperature was even higher, um, and it completely transfer it completely transformed the race. And especially for Pekka Banyaya, Pe- the, the most notable thing for me about Pekka Banyaya's race is when you look at the list of uh, uh, riders' fastest laps, Banyaya is only thirteenth. Um, he wasn't fast. He didn't try and run away with it. What he did was understand that, you know, I have to try and make this tire last. Um, he'd already like made that mental shift between, you know, the immediate, which was, you know, push and then just see what you can hang on into build it up, build it up and leave as much tire as possible at the end of the race. Um, it was an outstanding. It was, um, I'm sure that, uh, I'm sure that my, my colleague Neil will much appreciate this. It was a Dovey esque race, um, <laughs> by, uh, by Banyaya because it, I mean, it was, it was just an outstanding piece of tire management. Um, uh, it was interesting. One of the shifts, I, I think, some of the temperature shift is also because of the the the, the difference in uh, the date moving from earlier or from late August to early August uh, means, for example, that you get eighty minutes less sunlight every day, um, uh, which is an, an incredible. incredible like I, because I went to look at it, it's 83 minutes. There was 83 minutes less sunlight um, or less daylight uh, on the 7th of August 2022 than there was on the 29th of August 2021, um, which is a huge amount. And what that means is there's less time for the asphalt to absorb temperature and more time for it to lose ter- uh, uh, temperature sort of uh, uh, at the end of August. Uh, the start of August, everything is just hotter. Everything is, uh, uh, and that stresses the tyre more. And I think uh, to me, that was the difference. As soon as the riders twigged that 
it was the hard tire they were going to need. And it was risky because the left side, because you, the, uh, the left doesn't get a lot of action. Um, and the left side, unless you warmed it up properly, as Alicia Espargaro found out, it could really bite you. So you had to be patient. You had to wait until the, the tire came to you, the race come to you. And once it did, then it was sort of, uh, then, it, then it was sort of hanging in there. And I think, that to me was the uh, was the real greatness of Banyaya's race, uh, especially. Dave, did you say eighty three minutes less light? Yes, because that is one of the minutes. most that is I, one of the most gloriously geeky information or slices of I, information I've heard on the Paddock Pass podcast. I, I will not lie; I did actually try and uh, find out uh, how many degrees inclination of uh, of sunlight there uh, changed as well, but uh, that was a little bit beyond my Google skills at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> well, there you go, folks. You get it all on this particular podcast. I thought it was great the way that the tire situation Dave pretty much flipped the race on its head because I'm sure all three of us thought that when Alex Rins got to the front. We were going to see the first repeat winner in like eight editions uh, of the British Grand Prix. Um, it wasn't to be, and I think Rins's face and also his demeanor in, in the post-race media debrief pretty much said it all. It was a big miscalculation. I mean, a number of riders, at least half of the top 10, I think, suffered with, with tire wear, tire drop. Um, and also some of the, you know, I think Miguel Oliveira may have used a hard uh, or he made a, a better tire choice. That's why he was able to push and gain a number of positions in the last phases of the race. So um, it goes to show that, you know, sometimes despite all the experience and the technology and, and the expertise in the garages, that it's not always the right call. And of course, Peko's statement about finding something with the rear, the hard rear, um, what that something was, we, we didn't quite fi find out, but that was the basis of his race win. You look at, uh, you, you mentioned Rins there. I mean, Rins was the guy that actually set the fastest lap of the race on lap four, and that was six tenths faster than Banyaya's fastest lap and you wonder whether just those excerpts that Rins put in at the start of the race to build up that uh, that advantage whenever Johan Zarco crashed out, was that something that cost him out? I mean, was the sort of tire wear situation so delicate that even if you pushed a little bit uh, you know, early in the race, then it, it could really affect you and Rins had nothing left towards the end. He was pretty devastated. Um, you know, Banyaya, great ride. I think he said it was the best race of his career because really had to dig in really had to fight at no point in the weekend where you're looking at him and thinking he's the guy that's going to be on the podium even maybe um yet he managed to do it and of course he had the the good old pep talk from two of the former greats to uh, to help him um i think he, he spoke to casey stoner to ask what he did differently and he said to just be a little gentler later with the throttle at certain points in the track than what Pecco was doing and of course um, his, uh, his mentor Mr. Valentino Rossi had a word in his ear I think on Saturday night saying do not fuck up your tire choice you've done it before don't do it this weekend <laughs> so I think you can also um, you can also thank uh, the great doctor for uh, partly for that triumph uh, yeah, I mean, there was. To, I mean, to come back to Alex Rings first of all, uh, it, it was interesting watching the podium guys chatting before the podium ceremony uh, and talking about Alex Rings saying, you know, coming through, he burned up his tires. They were convinced that he burned up his tires just from from pushing so hard early on, and I think that was spot on because that was exactly what. Um, uh, I mean, 
it, it wasn't what Alex Rin said uh, himself, but uh, if you read between the lines and sort of like looked at what he'd done, then you sort of said, yeah, no, he lost lots of grip at the end of the race. I wonder whether that whether that was because he was riding like an absolute loon in the uh, in the first five laps. Um, uh, also, the, the interesting thing for me about Benyaya's advice from Stoner, I mean, like Rossi was key in telling him, uh, helping him to understand, you know, managing the temperature of the tyres. The advice from Stoner was interesting interesting in that uh, Stoner said, you know, uh, uh, be smoother on the throttle, be, you know, save your tire, later on the throttle to save your tire. Um, and Banya said, like, that worked up until, uh, like, the last five laps. And then he realized, okay, I've got to change my style. He went back to his natural style, which is to push the front more, is to brake later. Um, but the fact that he could switch styles in the first part of the race and save his tyre and then capitalise on his own style at the end when the when the rear was pretty much gone. That was impressive because also he didn't suffer a lot of drop-off towards the end of the race. Uh, you know, if you look at the Rins, Rins was doing 21.7, I think, or sorry, 2.017 um, uh, by the end of the race. And um, uh, uh, Banyar was still doing 2.06, so really an impressive piece of tyre management. Guys, we've come to the section of the show where we're going to talk about our winners and losers from the British Grand Prix. Um, I'm going to go first. Uh, I think, you know, also talking a little bit about, about some of the news that we heard from from Silverstone, um, I would like to say, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think racing was the winner um, for, for MotoGP generally at the British Grand Prix. But also, I think, potentially some MotoGP riders of the future. We saw Triumph. Um, announced that they're bringing a new, a new engine configuration to the Moto2 class, uh, more revs, more options, more gearing potential. So I think there could be a little bit more of a bigger palette there for Moto2 riders to get some gist or some vague feeling about what they're going to encounter when they come into the MotoGP class. So that was uh, pretty cool. As well as to see Triumph display some of those fantastic old motorcycles and a big display of their 150-year-old heritage. That was uh, and particularly nice of them to do it quite close to the media center. So we got to walk past it every time that we had to head into the paddock. Um, Neil, I'm tempted to say my loser from the British Grand Prix is you because, um, and I'm not referencing your fantasy team, but it was hard standing next to you while Andrea Davizioso gave his uh, farewell press conference, um, you know, that he's officially bowing out of MotoGP for good this time and doing it prematurely. Um, you know, I thought you conducted yourself with decorum, um, with dignity. You held it together. I didn't wet uh, my pants. You know, it was, yes, it was, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm proud of you. I thought you coped extremely well in the circumstances. Um, but no, I really, I think my loser, it just has to be HRC again. Um, barely getting two riders in the top 15 and point scoring positions. It all looked so bright on Thursday, of course, because Takanagagami had a new chassis. Uh, it was something that Stefan Bardo had already tested, but apparently was a little bit different further still. Um, the test rider Nagashima had been riding with it in Motegi, so uh, Taka had a little bit of um, glow. Uh, about him on Thursday but then by I think it was Saturday he was saying he felt quite lost so it was um, you know still Dave you mentioned earlier the Japanese don't like to test when they race but Honda are firmly in that situation now um, Alex Marquez I think is already dreaming of Ducati Paulo Spargaro wasn't given the same configuration as Takanakagami and when it comes to Honda we're just talking about if Mark Marquez might appear at Red Bull Ring to say hello everyone sign a few autographs and bugger off um, you know whether he can actually test at Mizano uh, is another thing. It's, it seems to be that Honda are pinching their hopes on somebody or pinching their hopes rather, uh, you know, on somebody that's not there. And, you know, uh, Marquez seems to be making progress with his preparation. 
Uh, if you just look at his social media account, whether he will be in Mazzano is the big talking point. And I'll get, I guess we'll have some more news if he does show up at the Red Bull ring. So uh, there we go. But Neil, um, just quickly before you winners and losers, how are you coping with Andrea De Vizioso's fade away from, from MotoGP? Although I have to say that Luca Marini's insights in MotoGP says, you know, that we have something of an air apparent when it comes to an Italian um, sage for motorcycle racing. I just need someone to break it all down for me, Ed, you know, so if one of you guys can maybe take on that role um, in uh, in future weeks, future months, future years, then, um, you know, that would be most welcome um, because, uh, yeah, some of these things in MotoGP, they're a bit too complex for my little uh, little tiny brain and having someone with the kind of skill to uh, talk in layman's terms as uh, Davizioso could, it was always most welcome. But, um, yes, yeah, so my winner, I guess, I'm going to have to say um, Aprilia um, just because... Uh, they have now scored what successive podiums with Maverick Vinales. Um, I think it's great that he's there now fighting at the front of races. It's absolute confirmation that um, they've got a, a fantastic bike. I don't think we needed that, to be fair, but further confirmation. And also just the fact that uh, in a complicated weekend for Alicia Spargro, they come away from Silverstone having lost just one point in the championship fight. So um, I think, yes, Dave said it was a missed opportunity earlier for Alish. It was. But uh, talk about limiting the damage when you were riding with a fractured right heel. I mean, um, not bad. So, yeah, I think Aprilia come away as the big winners. And who was your loser? My loser was uh, fast Fabio Quattararo, or not so fast Fabio Quattararo on Sunday, as uh, he should have been known. Um, yeah, it is, it's interesting, isn't it, just how it can change so quickly. After Germany, it just seemed like uh, an absolute given that Fabio was going to romp to his second straight title. Um, didn't seem that anyone could want a, a challenge to him, uh, let alone be consistent in doing so. Um, yet, uh, you know, Fabio comes away from Assen and Silverstone, two tracks that you would have expected him to clean up at with, uh, what, just eight points from a possible 50. Um, and suddenly you're thinking the title race is back on because the next tracks we're going to, uh, Red Bull Ring, Mizano, Aragon. I mean, two of those you can think are going to be very difficult for Yamaha this year. Rebel Ring and Aragon, Fabio's bogey circuit. Um, so I think um, that, you know, this isn't quite uh, a done deal just yet. And, um, you know, he must be looking at someone like Pekka Banyaya, who should be great at the next three circuits as um, as the, the, the kind of coming man. So, um, you know, suddenly I think we have a, a title fight again in our hands. Uh, you say that the Red Bull Ring is a bad track for Fabio, but then my abiding memory of you know the last year was Fabio Quartararo sort of breaking what looked like about two hundred meters sort of later <laughs> than everyone else and overtaking everyone. So I'm not convinced that it's going to be a bad track for him. I think that uh, Fabio can actually do really really well at uh, uh, Austria I if think, his uh, brakes work, Dave. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> if his if his brakes work, yeah. But I mean, you know, Brembo should have fixed that. I mean, you know, their the latest package is pretty pretty good. So um, he, was, he was good but, there last year, Dave. But you know. It's a bike that stood still where the yeah. other, you know, the Aprilia's and the Ducatis have taken, you know, big steps ahead now. Um, yeah. So yes, yeah, exactly. So yes, and, and, and you also said, you know, he's only scored eight points, uh, eight points out of a possible 50. And it's worth pointing out that the person who did score a possible 50 out of 50 is Pekka Banyaya. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, my winner is Pekka Banyaya for exactly that reason. The fact that he scored 50 points out of the last two races um, taken a big, big chunk out of uh, Fabio Quartararo. And it was 
just an outstanding ride. It was just genuinely a fantastic, mature, intelligent uh, ride. He put everything together. He did everything right. Well, we, I mean, you, you have to scrap Friday and Saturday. I mean, what, what they learned on Friday and Saturday was that they chosen the wrong tire. And then once they'd figured out that they needed the, the, the hard rear, then it was just a fantastic, uh, just a really, really outstanding race. So for me, head and shoulders, Pekka Banyar uh, wins that. Um, it, and it goes to show, Dave, that you can take the man of I, out of Ibiza and you can also take the Ibiza out of the man. Yeah, apparently so, yes. I mean, I actually think uh, on Thursday, I didn't think that um, uh, Paco handled that particular controversy uh, very well. Um, there was a lot of, you know, sort of sniping about it and trying to pretend it was all forgotten, uh, uh, gone on forgotten. But uh, I think in the press conference, he got asked about that and he was much cleverer with his responses you know like saying look i made a mistake and i uh, shan't do it again and i've learned from it and, and all the rest of it i thought he was uh, I, I thought he handled that very well i don't think Ducati have handled it very well but uh, it's not um it's not for me to say um it is for uh, in you to terms say. You're a of sorry it is for you to say you're a journalist Oh, right. Yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to just spout opinions, aren't I? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, like they should have been all over it. They should have, um, uh, the, 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 uh, they've done a terrible job of sports washing uh, drunk driving, which is, um, an incredibly idiotic thing to do. And they could have, you know, signed him up to be the figurehead of, um, uh, of some anti-drink driving initiative and he would have meant that he'd have to turn up somewhere for two afternoons in the year uh, get his face plastered all over over posters um, and uh, job jobbed and he would have come out looking uh, looking contrite and fantastic and now they just sort of like try to sweep it all under the carpet uh, and here I am slagging them off on the Paddock Pass podcast so uh, <laughs> there you go that is generally the that is generally yeah, it generally means you've done a bad job. If you know, if you've got a, a, an idiot like me spouting off about you on uh, on podcasts, um, complaining uh, of bad driving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, anyway, but um, uh, my loser. <laughs> Not Pekka Badiaya um, or, 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 Ducati. or, Ducati. or Ducati. Ducati's PR department. No, my, my, my loser has to be Juan Mir because it does seem that, um, I mean, if he keeps going at this rate, he will actually be paying Repsol Honda to ride there. Um, again, he looked like he had decent pace. He had a poor qualifying. He looked like he could, get it, he could actually do something and he ends up crashing out again. And you can't do that. You just can't keep on on doing that. It re I mean, it really seems that he's lost his focus. That he's been affected by things that they he, that they can't quite put a whole package for him together. So, you know, with Juan Mir, as soon as he's get a, he gets a good result, um, then he can turn it around again. But th there's been this long string of. Uh, disappointing and bad results and this was another one in that in that uh, in that long long list um and it's not looking it, it, it's just not looking very good well listen guys we come to the end of the paddock pass podcast uh neil safe travels home from the uk dave you also on two wheels and you know uh, good luck trying to catch up with cormac gp on the way <laughs> to the red bull ring i think you'll see him for all of maybe two miles and that'll be it uh, we'll be back next week to talk about the Austrian Grand Prix. Um, it's going to be a busy one. Um, some announce announcements expected and some other news, of course, as we headed firmly into the second phase of the MotoGP season. Thanks ever so much for listening, guys. Don't forget to send us any feedback through Twitter. Um, for those listening through other 
platforms such as Apple, then uh, leave us a, a vote or a comment or subscribe. Uh, we're, also, we're also on Patreon, as we've mentioned several times, um, where we bring detailed race notes, um, some opinions and news that we've heard direct from the circuit. So follow us on Patreon for those latest updates or daily updates from the Grand Prix events themselves. Um, and, and that's it. We'll be back you- next. Oh, sorry, Neil. And follow us on YouTube as well, because, of course, you could be watching this in visual form. Yes. Uh, if you wish to inflict any sort of visual uh, punishment on yourself, then the th- our three faces can be seen on YouTube. Uh, good point, Neil. Thank you for bringing that one up. Uh, other than that, it will be a pleasure to talk to you all again next week. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Wanted to sneeze but couldn't. <laughs>